Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are continuing our wonderful major series in the book of Daniel, and class teacher Doug Brady is bringing this to us at this very special time in our country. Much of what we see in the United States today mirrors what was going on in Babylon as recorded in Daniel, which was written in the 6th century before Christ. Today's lesson is taken from Daniel chapter 4 and verses 4 through 27. You will certainly want to have your Bible open and ready as we go through these verses today. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We invite you to join us if you are in the Dallas area. Well, Doug has gone to the podium and is ready to begin this lesson in Daniel chapter 4. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Nebuchadnezzar believes he's the most important man in the world. He believes he's the most powerful man in the world. He believes that he is in control of the world. Now, he probably is the most powerful man in the world at the time he's living, but he's certainly not the most important, and he's certainly not in control. And there have been events that we have seen where he has come to see that, and then he seems to forget those quickly, because we know what power does to a man, and we know what absolute power does to a man. But I want you to think about it not from that perspective for a moment, but from the perspective of a Jewish person, a man or a woman, depending on your gender, who was there in Jerusalem when the final invasion came and they completely destroyed the city. They killed Jew after Jew. They completely flattened the temple. They took everyone who was still alive as a captive to be slaves in Babylon. And here is this megalomaniac ruler who's controlling things. And if you don't do what he says, he'll throw you in a fiery furnace or he'll have your heads chopped off or whatever else he decides to do on a whim. Then you come to an event here in chapter four when he's going to go insane, not by any natural reasons, but by divine intervention. And you think, is there any reason whatsoever that I should pray that this man come to know the one true God? Because there is no way that would ever happen. Wouldn't you agree from that setting that that would be what you would think? Yes, Don, let me ask you, do you think you could maybe have that same feeling about a leader who thinks he's all powerful and maybe he's a little bit on the uh, insane side in one of the major nations of this world wouldn't think you think it'd be impossible for the Lord to be able to win him over. I'll tell you, it'd be, it'd be a chore, but I think God can do it, but he better hurry. 
I have never found God to be on a human timetable, but the fact is, I, I understand. And today, we're going to review just a few things before we proceed to chapter 4. You remember, in relation to spiritual absolutes, what does God not ever want us to do? Compromise. God never honors compromise. What gave Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah the strength to stand on their faith in this test that came up when their lives were at stake and they were going to be burned alive? Things didn't go out the way they hoped it might. I like to say it with a different word. Faith is correct, but I like to say it with, they were convinced. Convinced of what? To me, convinced is even maybe a little stronger word than faith. It's faith that is absolute. No, no room for a waiver. They were convinced that God was sovereign. That is, that he exists, that he was involved in the affairs of men, and he would always bring about the results that he wanted. No matter what the circumstances were, God could always accomplish the results that he wanted. Number two, they were convinced that the scriptures were inerrant. They were absolutely reliable. They refused to bow down because they knew God had forbidden it. And it would have been a violation of their covenant with God to bow down to that idol. So, because of that, they were willing to die for their convictions. Now, do you think there could ever come a time in our nation where we might have to die for those same kind of convictions? Certainly, you could have that opportunity over in North Korea. But the fact is, these young men knew they weren't going to die one day before God's plan for them to come to heaven. And that's what they were thankful for. If you look again at their statement to the king, you can see it unequivocally in Daniel chapter 3, verse 17, where they say, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, not necessarily out of the fiery furnace, but out of your hand. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we, will not, we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. Now, the second thing I want us to, to recall and, or to recollect as we're going forward is God always has a reason for everything he does. Now, Tom, do we most of the time find out the reason before things happen? No, we can figure out maybe some of them looking back, but not looking forward because God's reasons are so divine or godly that we just can't think on that level. But what are some of the reasons that God had for bringing Nebuchadnezzar over to invade Judah and besiege Jerusalem. Well, number one, it turns out that the Jewish people had failed to follow the law of giving a Sabbath rest to their land. Every seven years, you weren't to plant. You were to let the, the land rest. For 70 years, they failed to do that. How long were they in captivity in Babylon? 70 years. 70 years. That was why God, through Jeremiah, said that's how long the captivity would last. Number two, were the Israelites having any trouble with idolatry? And in fact, they were addicted to it. And they couldn't stay away from it. 
after the captivity, they never had a problem with idolatry again. They were cured of their addiction of idolatry and all the evils that it entails. A third reason. He needed to build Daniel and his companions into the kind of men who could lead his people through the time of the Gentiles. That was a time that's going to last a long time. And God intended for the people of Israel to look back and take the example of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We're not going to be compromisers. If that means they kill us, then they kill us. But God's in control. We will not compromise when it comes to spiritual absolutes. But the fourth one that I see, that's the amazing one to me. He wanted to save Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was going to be his man. When God goes after a man, what normally happens? He gets him. So you're going to get to meet Nebuchadnezzar one day. So we've been following. You let your wife lay against your arm. Sometimes you get her hair. Forgive me. When you, I don't know why I say things like that. Well, it's just my wife likes to be close to me, Don. You can? I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I would have been concerned if you'd have said the other. But the fact is, he is trying to introduce himself to Nebuchadnezzar. God is. Do you remember in the first chapter, you got these three guys who just graduated from school, and they were better than the professionals. And he recognized something in these three, four young men, and he put them in important positions in his government. Secondly, then, he comes up with this dream that comes from God. It shows him the entire time of the Gentiles and none of Nebuchadnezzar's man can respond or can tell him what the dream is or what its interpretation should be. But God's man can. And he begins to see, gee, this man is unlike any other man I've ever met. What makes him so different? Thirdly, he got to meet up close and personal the other three. When they looked him in the eye and said, we're not bowing down to your golden image, no matter what you claim you're going to do to us. And they got to spend an hour to an hour and a half uh, in the fiery furnace with their Lord. And then he called them out and they came and he examined and he realized this God they worship is something else. But today we come to the last act. You know, now this is just my experience and I'm not saying this is a, uh, biblical, but it seems to me that men tend to be a little more hard-headed than women. Oh, yeah. Have you found that to be the, the case? Guilty. It's Father's Day. <laughs> so, well, it may be, but we're telling the truth here. You wouldn't want me to stand up here on Father's Day and tell a falsehood, would you? No. no. I think let's, let's look at this last chance. Uh, you need to open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. And we're going to start reading in Daniel 4, 4. And that's where we will start today. Before we do, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we can spend here today opening this book and looking at it and examining what you are doing in this man Nebuchadnezzar's life. Help us, like Daniel, to, to be able to be used by you to speak to someone who needs to know you. Help us to understand that that is our primary directive in life today, to be able to share the good news of who and what you are. Help us, Father, to always be ready to provide an answer to those around us 
so that they can know what it really means to live a full and meaningful life. I pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. We start out in Daniel 4.4. Question. Yeah. Uh, two, two observations. One, uh, it seems that fulfilled prophecy, fulfilled prophecy is scientific proof that God exists. Uh, secondly, this is an observation. Secondly, so the fulfillment of prophecy is, from a scientific point of view, is proof of God's existence. Well, I, I, I would agree with you. It is. Yeah, okay, that's, that's an observation, maybe a principle. Secondly, you know, remember in Daniel chapter 2 when they mentioned that the stone, how it was set up. And, and Cut out without hands. Yeah, it was set up. And then when you get into Daniel 3, the word set up shows up nine times. So you have Nebuchadnezzar trying to set up this kingdom, and he falls flat. And then we get into chapter 4. So I just thought I'd mention that because it seems kind of odd to me, you know, the whole setup deal. You're right, and he's setting up that golden image. And I think based on the image that he had the dream of, and did the image topple? Yes, it did. And what's going to happen to that golden image? It's going to topple too. Because man and what he creates never lasts. Man and what he creates never lasts. So, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace, and I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind, kept alarming me. So, I gave orders to, to bring into my presence all of the wise men of Babylon, that they might uh, make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related to them uh, the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, or Belteshazzar, however you want to say it, according to the name of my God, and in whom a spirit of the holy gods or whom, in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the vision of my dream, which I have seen along with its interpretation. Now, one of the things you need to understand is this passage appears to be either spoken or written by Nebuchadnezzar and reported by Daniel. And I imagine it's in the decree that we'll read about in verses 1 through 3 next week. But I want you to see some things about this passage and come to understand them. And the first thing is, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house. What does that mean, at ease in my house? Well, it's an idiom that he uses. And what you should understand it to be, it means to be in a state of not having to do anything. In a state of not having to do anything. Do you remember when we studied David? And David uh, decided he just wasn't going to go to war. Uh, and he was going to stay at home and walk around the top of his palace looking for naked ladies or whatever. You remember that? Yeah, he did. But... That's what this concept at ease means. We have a word that we use for that. It's called retired. And 
retired? Yes, retired. You don't have to go to work when you retire, or at least that's the concept of retirement. And so that's the condition he's in, number one. Then number two, there is a, another idiom I want you to see, flourishing in my palace. Now, this word flourishing, or the words that was translated here, it means growing green. That's the concept. Now, you're going to see that's a play on words here with the dream that's coming up. But this idiom means to be in prosperity. He's doing extremely well. Uh, do you remember people used to say, what's your job? Well, I cut coupons off the bonds. That's my job. Some of you who are older may remember that, you know, and you're getting the money in from these municipal bonds and it comes in tax-free and all of that. Well, this is this concept. Now, it's interesting because Jesus commented on this concept in Luke chapter 12, verse 18, and he said, this is what I will do. This is the rich man who is flourishing. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And then, of course, Jesus said, and tomorrow you will die. But this is this concept he described in Luke is the same construct of what's going on here. I'm the, I'm the emperor of the world. Everyone, I'm more powerful than anybody around. No one can do anything. They tried to have a coup, and I just destroyed it. So we're now looking at what's going on here in preparing for this dream. Now, this dream, like the last one, left Nebuchadnezzar fearful and full of a sense of foreboding. This word fearful means to be afraid. Now, it's interesting because the word is in the pale stem in Aramaic, and that's a reflexive stem. Now, a reflexive stem means that the subject is doing the action of the verb on itself. In other words, he's making himself fearful. Now, it just so happens that I have a very good example of that. For example, if there was a little bird chimney sweep about this side that were to fly into my house, Oh, there would be screams and yells and moans and calls for help because the bird is going to attack her. It's kind of reflexive. Now, she will tell you that, yes, that will happen. And the prime rib, she's throwing out that bird might poop on the prime rib. And it would be terrible. She'd have to throw it away. And so, you know, you have to understand these things. But that's fearful. The next word is alarming. And I think it means... Really, to it's not reflexive here, but it's terrifying, to terrify. So what is happening, he sees this dream the first time, and it very much upsets him. What is going on here? And you'll see why it would when you hear the dream. And then it keeps happening. He keeps seeing these fantasies and these visions in his mind, and it just is getting worse and worse as it builds up. This dream won't leave me. It haunts me. Every time I go to sleep, here comes this dream. And I hate it. And it's terrible. And I've got to find an answer. So he calls the wise men. Now, I want you to notice here just a second what, what's going on here. Andy, how many of the wise men did he call? 
all is what he said. Would that include Daniel? Yeah, it would. He was a wise man. He's the head of the magicians. It calls, he should be included, but he's not there at first. So why? Why isn't he? Well, a lot of scholars have come up with a lot of ideas. Some people say he was on a trip and he's coming back. When Nebuchadnezzar makes his call, he's not there. The rest of them come in. Others say, no, he waited intentionally. So let them go in there and let them have their shot at this. And then I'll go in there and you can compare God's knowledge in me, the world's knowledge in them, and then we'll have another chapter two and he'll be able to see what's going on. Elijah with Baal. He still, he believes in, in the God of Daniel, but he also believes in these other... Yes, he's polytheistic. He doesn't believe in there's only one God. You remember the name used by your God or by my God. My God, not, not just the name of the God, but his God, his patron God, Bel, or Marduk, whichever you want to call it. And so these other men come in, but they obviously do not have the spirit of the one true God in them, and they cannot tell the thing, the interpretation of the stream. Now, some people would think they might try. In the past, they've tried. And told him all kinds of things to con him, to manipulate him. Here they don't. Why? They know Daniel's coming, number one. And number two, even if they knew this interpretation, I don't think they would want to tell the king. They don't want to tell him. You know, Nebuchadnezzar's the kind of guy who shoots the messenger. So they don't know. So Daniel is finally arrives, and then he comes in, and I want us to look carefully, though, at, at these phrases, because I've been doing a great deal of study on that this week. And I want you to see, but finally, verse 8, finally Daniel uh, came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and, in, and who, in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. Now, you look in verse 9, and it says the same thing, uh, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you. This is one way to translate it, a spirit of the holy gods. You can also translate it, the spirit of the holy God. All right? Those are the two translations. Now, you never would translate this in Aramaic as God singular if you just spoke Aramaic, and that was all, and you had no Hebrew influence. But remember, they translate this same phrase, the Spirit of the Holy God, which occurs 13 times, pardon me, 12 times in the Hebrew Old Testament, as the Spirit of the Holy God. Well, let me say they don't translate that. It's the Spirit of God. Don't use the word holy. And they translate singular, even though Elohim is plural in Hebrew. And Daniel is simply using the plural form of God in Aramaic as he would use the plural form of God in Hebrew as he's writing this. So I believe, and in fact, in the ESV and the King James, it translates it, the spirit of the holy God. Now, here's the question. Which way do you translate it? Well, which God is, I mean, which God is he talking about? Is he using God's plural referring to all the gods? Uh, or is he using God singular, although he's using the majestic plural, in order to indicate the one true God of Daniel? Well, let me tell you, I discovered this week how you can know for certain. 
Do you know that this phrase occurs nowhere else in the Bible, a the spirit of the holy God, other than here in Daniel? Nowhere else in the Old When I say the Bible, it would only be the Old Testament because that's it. Why? One of the reasons, because this is the only time it's written in Aramaic. The word holy in there. Now, here's the thing. People who worship the polytheistic gods of Babylon would never say the holy God. Why? Because their gods are not holy. That's the whole concept of being a god. You get to do whatever you want, which is, for the most part, immorality. And, you know, Babylonian gods were shacking up with everybody in their stories. So what they have here is this concept of, no, this is the moral holy God. So he's got to be talking about Daniel's God. That's why you translated the spirit of the holy God. Dawn. Would the Septuagint or any of those ancient translations help with this? I didn't get a chance to look at the Septuagint. That would be a good thing to look at, and we maybe ought to try and look at it and see what it says about Daniel. Septuagint is a translation from the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek. So we'll see that. Now, once we come to see that, we now come to the vision itself. And here is the man who has the spirit of the holy God in him who listens to this statement by Nebuchadnezzar of the dream. And he starts this way in verse 10. Now, these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. And I was looking and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. And the tree grew and became strong and its height reached to the sky and it was visible to the ends of the earth or the whole earth. And its foliage was beautiful. And notice how this is all coming out. And its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. And the beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. And all living creatures fed themselves from it. And I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. And he spoke out and spoke as follows. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. Now, I want you to notice something here. It's using the pronoun it up to now. And now... The pronoun gender is going to change. But with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth and let his mind be changed from that of a mind, that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. And this sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. Can you see why this might be a little alarming to Nebuchadnezzar? Who does Nebuchadnezzar, as he looks at this dream, see himself as? The tree. And what is going to happen to that tree? It's going to be chopped down. 
So the king relates the dream to Daniel, and he does it as fortunately in front of the whole court. And then he asks Daniel to tell him what it means. Look at his plea. This is the dream, in verse 18, which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for a spirit of the holy God is in you. Why does Daniel able? Because the spirit of the holy God resides in him. So let's look at Daniel's response, starting in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. Now, I want you to stop there and think a second. You're the king. You're terrified of this dream. You finally get this man in front of you who you know can tell you what the meaning of this dream is because of who resides in him. And you lay out the dream in full. And he's going, oh, my God. And you can see that he is greatly perturbed, saddened, and alarmed How do you think that affects Nebuchadnezzar? You know, can you imagine if someone you love is on the operating table and you know it's going to be give and take and the doctor finally comes out and there's blood on him and and you say, how did he go? You know, that would not be good feelings engendering, would it? No, not encouraging at all. So that's what Nebuchadnezzar is seeing, and it makes it even worse for him. And the king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar replied, my lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation your adversaries. Well, do you think that's encouraging to Nebuchadnezzar? <laughs> no, probably not. I want you to note the appearance of Daniel when he came to understand the dream. You, you have only two choices. Either it was real or it was fake. Now, if you're a man of integrity, you're authentic. You're not fake. And Daniel was a man of integrity. His, his response was real. Yes? Just an observation. The first time Daniel interpreted a dream, it was good news to Nebuchadnezzar. And it came true. The second time was really bad news. Think about how Nebuchadnezzar would have uh, responded if Daniel didn't give good news on the first vision, but on the second one, he, he may not have believed it, but it only intensified his belief on the bad news. Did you hear that? It, it really intensifies his belief, even though it's not good news at all. Daniel can't come in here and say, well, I've got good news and bad news. No, I've got bad news and worse news. That's, that's what I've got. And he, he tells him this, but it's not fake what his, his appearance here. This is an emotional response that Daniel has to this dream that is true. Why is the important question. Why? Because he loves Nebuchadnezzar. Wait a second. He loves this guy? The guy who had him castrated? He loves that guy? The guy who almost killed his three friends? That guy? The guy who destroyed his city and his temple, that guy, the guy who was going to kill him when he didn't even know him when he said kill all the wise men in chapter 2. That guy, he loves that guy? Yes. How does he get a love for that guy? The spirit that's living in him. Gary? If you go back to Jeremiah 29, he was to see to the benefit of that country. So he was there for the king's benefit. 
You're right. And he does know Jeremiah, and in fact, he's reading it in chapter 9, right? Yeah, yeah, but he is, his obligation is to be So I believe this was a real, a real reflection of his heart when he was so appalled about what was going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. And even though he, you could say Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Daniel's life. But Daniel, you see, had forgiven him. How well could God be using him in this situation if he hadn't forgiven Nebuchadnezzar? Lack of forgiveness makes you a dull tool in the toolbox of God. Does the Holy Spirit really reveal things to people who are living in sin? You know, we say living in sin and we try to mean, we, that's an idiom in English. But I'm talking about living in sin in general. And if you refuse to forgive someone who God wants you to forgive, that's sin. Say, but yeah, he deserves it. She is owed this. No, not according to God. God says, let me repay, not you. Vengeance is not yours. So Daniel had forgiven him. And he'd forgiven him because the love of God was in his heart. And you see, God can change anyone. So let's look at verse 20. The tree that you saw, he now says to Nebuchadnezzar, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and his fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the bird of the sky lodged. That is you, O king. Now, he makes it great sounding to be that tree to start with. But I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar's going, oh, no, that's exactly what I thought. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it yet leave the stump with its roots to the ground, but with the band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with dew, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time have passed over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you will be driven away from mankind. And your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. And you will be given grass to eat like the cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in it that it is, was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. That's the interpretation. Now let's look at it a little more carefully. The king is depicted as a tree. You'll see there in verses 20 through 22, whose dominion extended throughout the earth. The king is the tree. There's no question. Now let me tell you, with something that seems crazy to me, there are a number of what I'm going to call progressive scholars higher biblical critics, whatever you want to say, they take the dream and they stop there and they come up with their own interpretation of it. 
And they say, this means this, and this means that. And they come up with things that you just wouldn't imagine. Why do they think they can do that? All you have to do is keep reading through the Bible, and you will find the interpretation of what it means. You know, they say the same thing about Revelation. Do you know there's 26 visions in Revelation, and God gives you 26 interpretations of those visions in that book. Now, sometimes you have a dream like the dream of Joseph, where he dreamed of the sun, the moon, and the stars, and you have to wait till Revelation to get the interpretation, but it still comes. All you have to do is be patient on God. But we humans seem to think we know so much more than God, especially some of them, some of us who don't know God, and, and we do that. But the tree, you know, a tree is often used to describe an empire or a nation. You know, Israel's been referred to as an olive tree, been referred to as a fig tree in Matthew 24, verse 32. And it's interesting, one of Nebuchadnezzar's inscriptions that they have found, you know, he'd put inscriptions on all of his royal bricks that he would build with. One of the inscriptions that had been recovered uses a tree as a metaphor to picture the Babylonian Empire protecting and providing all of its subjects. That's, that's the king's own inscription. So he used the king, uh, a tree to describe himself in his kingdom. And then we see what happens to the tree is a result of the decision of the one true God. I want you to look at this next passage here. He says, an angelic watcher. Now that's another phrase that's not used too often in the scripture. You notice angelic is in italics. That's because it's added by the translator to help us understand what's really being talked about here. Here, it's the correct use of, of the italics because this watcher is a special kind of angel. God has angels who are watching and prepared to do his bidding immediately when they see certain things happen. And that was what was happening here. And God had these angelic watchers. So this angelic watcher, he's over this nation of Babylon and he's prepared to do God's bidding at any point whether it be good or whether it be bad from the perspective of the Babylonians. And here, from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, it's clearly bad. And so he's, he gives this order, and it comes out from this angelic being. And this, this term, watcher, can also be used as messenger, but he's clearly going to be sending a message to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, God is going to decimate this tree. Do you notice what it says, how he's going to do it? In verse 25, it says, Then you will be driven away from mankind. They won't let you stay there because you're becoming an animal. And your dwelling place is with the beasts of the field. And you will be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is the ruler. And, but I'm going to leave the stump. Now I want us to look at that for just a second. When does Nebuchadnezzar's redemption occur? Or if it's going to occur? When he what? Well, after you recognize that his heaven is rules. If seven times pass and he doesn't recognize, what will happen? 
He's not in a very good position, is he? He will be an animal the rest of his life. You know, it's interesting. How many people do you think graduate from Harvard, Yale, Rutgers, Brown, however many more, Michigan, Ohio State, I hate to say this, Texas, SMU, Baylor, that you are just a naked ape. You're just one step above them, you're just an animal. Ape. ape. That's what they like to refer to it as, naked ape. You begin to see what they're, what they're doing here. You see, you're just an animal. You just evolved a little higher than the apes, and you're an animal. God says, no, you're not. You were created in my image. None of the animals were created in my image and according to my likeness, but you were as a man. What I'm doing is I'm taking Nebuchadnezzar down a peg. I'm turning him back into an animal. I'm turning him, not back, but into an animal. And he won't be in my image when he's like this. But he's got an important decision to make. Now, also, we've brought up this concept of periods of time. What is, how long is this period of time? You know, in our vernacular, we have seconds, minutes, days, weeks. I mean, it left out hours. Uh, days, weeks, months, years, decades, centuries. What is this period of time? Seven you say seven years. Well, then you're quoting a very good source there. But the fact, no. The fact is that that is what this normally would mean. If you look in the New Testament, it talks about the use of times. Uh, many, many, many different, especially in Revelation. Many times it will say a time, times, and half a time. How long is that? Three and a half years, 42 months, uh, 1,290 days. And in fact, it's interesting, the same passage, there'll be parallel passages where they'll say one place, a time times half a time. Another place, they'll say 42 months. Another place, they'll say uh, 1,290. Now you say, wait a second, all months are not 30 days. They are in the Hebrew calendar. All months are 30 days. So that's what that period of time means. Now, yes? Is it seven completion? Seven is a time of completion for God, and I think God is imposing this time period, but I can't draw much meaning from that use of seven here. Complete in his transformation and understanding of God. Well, as far as from the animal attack, yes, or animal insanity, yes, but, you know, I think his introduction to God started a long time ago, back in 586. So, this, Les. Uh, you started out uh, saying that uh, Israel uh, didn't uh, do things with the land for seven years. For 70, every seven years. Every seven years, and then they're, they're, then they're in captivity for 70 years. Yes. So now we've got seven years for them. Seven years for never. There are a lot of sevens there, aren't there? And it may be that that ties together. But why would Nebuchadnezzar be paying for the sins of Israel? I don't know. But, and he wasn't alive the entire 70 years of the captivity. But I want you to look in verse 27. The idiot who wrote these notes, you just put seven there, I think. But you'll, it's, it's 27. We're looking at this time, times a half a time, you see it in Daniel 7, you see it in Daniel 12, verse 7, 
You see it in Revelation 12, um, and that's where it is. But I now want to look at the 27th verse, and we're going to spend the rest of the time today looking at verse 27, because it's something that is very, very important for us to see. Therefore, O king, Daniel says, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy uh, to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. What is Daniel talking about here? That's what we want to understand. First of all, when I approach something like this, I want to say, what do we know as fact? What are the facts that are clear? Number one, God gave this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. That is a fact. Can be no question about it. God gave the dream. Number two, he had Daniel there to explain it. Now, Daniel didn't show up until the world could be proved they couldn't do it. They couldn't cut it. But Daniel was the one God had there. Then God had Daniel there to guide Nebuchadnezzar into a plan of redemption. Now, think about this a second. Did God destroy the tree? No, he only partially destroyed it. What did he leave? He let the root. In fact, see the picture of the stump? That's a, uh, I know it's black and white. I couldn't find a color. That's the stump. It's got an uh, iron band around it, and the cap is bronze. So nothing can grow out of there for seven years. But the fact that he left it like that, what is that speaking of? God's grace. I'm giving you a chance. If you make this turn, the kingdom will be preserved for you. Now, if you're a king and they say, you're going to be out of the game for seven years, nobody will know anything really about you. What are you thinking? Well, when I come back, I won't be king. Somebody will have taken my place. God is saying, no, I'm reserving your place. If you make the right decision, come back. Yes, sir. Oh, that's right. Did you hear that? That covering like that keeps the top of the tree from having so much water or insects that it rots. I thought so too. So it's also clear the evidence of the mercy and grace of God. Now, we come to a question. If Nebuchadnezzar follows Daniel's advice in verse 27, would God have relented? And not had him uh, go become insane and, and be an animal. When God sent Jonah, remember we studied Jonah? When he sent Jonah to Nineveh, he told him, because of your wickedness, God is going to destroy this city in 30 days. And what did the people do? They turned to God. They repented. They opened their hearts to the one true God. Did God destroy the city? Oh, you mean when they repented, he relented of his intended destruction. If the people in Sodom had instead listened to Lot and those two angelic beings were there, would God have destroyed Sodom? You know, it's interesting. You say, how do you know that? Because Jesus once told uh, the city of Nazareth, if the city of Sodom had seen in their day, the things I've done in your city, they'd still be around. 
See, Jesus knows not anything actual. He knows everything hypothetical. If this, then that, he knows. And that's what he's explaining here. So I'm convinced if Nebuchadnezzar would have followed Daniel's instructions, he wouldn't have become an animal. He would not have, no. Forsake your sin. Eliminate your pride. Now, that's what he told him to do. Forsake your sin, eliminate your pride. How does God feel about pride? In Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, he makes a list. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. What is the first thing on the list? Haughty eyes, pride. He hates it more than anything else. It's the number one thing on his list. Now, does he hate lying? Yes, he does. He hates lying. But lying is number two. Pride is number one. Now, how does Daniel propose breaking away from sin? By substituting righteousness in its place. And this is what I want to focus before we finish. This is what I want you to see. Have you ever heard of the concept of substitutional righteousness? It is key. It is awesome. This is the way, you know, some people, you think, you know, I have tried to stop sinning, but I just can't. It's like it stalks me. And there are certain things that are always there and I always fall for. And others, I can evade sometimes, but then I'll be weak and it'll get me too. And I just can't, I can't quit. I just am addicted to sin, it seems like. As hard as I try, man cannot say, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, and I'm not going to do it. Can't say it. Because he'll always do it. Sooner or later, he'll do it. But Daniel has said something here. Now, the first thing I want you to see is this. Let's go back to what God said in verse, chapter 4, verse 17. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic ones, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Who determines what's going to happen? God does. Who is in control of this world? Now, did God make this world and then walk away for it and let it do what it wanted to do? Absolutely not. He is involved in the affairs of man. This is the direct statement of God that I am involved. I am in control. I put who I want to. Now, when he says the lowliest of men, who's he talking about there? I think he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. But he could be talking about Joe Biden. Could he not? Could he be talking about George Bush or Barack Hussein Obama? He could be talking about any of those people. He could be talking about the head of the Communist Chinese Party. But one of the most difficult lessons to learn is that God is sovereign. He's above all governments, all business, all religious leaders in the entire world. Those of us, you know, who live in freedom which is relatively few in the world, and with a relatively high degree of autonomy, sometimes find this difficult to accept. We tend to think we can do what we want. Many believe that they are free to do what they choose. But God is sovereign in all plans and all desires, and he will make happen what he wants to happen. Now, the second thing. Who is giving advice to Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel. How 
is Daniel a righteous man? How righteous is he? In fact, when God was talking to Ezekiel, God told Ezekiel, you know what? Your people become so wicked, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were there, they would only save themselves by their own righteousness. In other words, those are the three most righteous men who had lived up to that point. And you notice, which position did they put Daniel in? Second, in between Noah and Job. So you couldn't say Noah, Job, and then this add-on guy who's the, you know, I wanted three and this was the best I could get. He was right in between. Now, somebody who knows righteousness like that, should we not listen to what he has to say? I think we should. So let's do that. Substitutional righteousness. What is it and how do you do it? Well, there's two types of sin. There's really wrongful thoughts and wrongful actions. Wrongful actions, how do you substitute righteousness for wrongful actions? Before you do them, while you're still considering whether or not, substitute righteous activities. You know what? I got to think of a sin that I don't do so I can use, and I'm having trouble finding one. Uh, Gary, you have a suggestion? I really don't understand what this means in light of Daniel, because after all, Nebuchadnezzar did not do that. I understand that, but this is what he was telling him to do that could have saved him. And if this is what Daniel was suggesting Nebuchadnezzar to do for his life, we ought to say, I want to do that for my life. So you substitute righteous activities. What kind of righteous activities? Well, reading and studying your Bible, uh, memorizing passages of scriptures, attending worship service, sharing your faith with unbelievers, testifying to God's goodness. Now consider these last one. Writing songs and poetry to his faithfulness, sovereignty, and love, and using those in times of worship, both public and private. Worshiping God as a substitute for sin. So now you go back and you say, writing songs, who did that? David did. Has not the songs that David wrote been able to help us so much in our strife for righteousness? Think of what benefit just Psalm 23 has had on so many people. Now, wrongful thoughts, that's harder. But if you have been memorizing, you can review memory work when the bad thoughts come. Don't try and push them out. Try to fill instead your mind with God's Word. Review the memory work you've been working on. If you only know one verse, John three sixteen, start saying it and meditating on it and think, what does it really mean? What does it go from? Start meditating on God's Word. His Word, His promises, His attributes. Now, to do those last two, you've got to know some of God's Word, don't you? You've got to prepare. Now, a third thing, singing songs which redirect your attention to your master, whether out loud or to yourself. Now, you're if, like my son Brooks or his father, me, it's probably best most of the time to sing them to yourself because we're not known for being able to sing very well in our family. Now, I want you to think about this for a second, right before we finish here. Think about this. Isn't it true, or, or some of them may say, you're saying all this about singing songs, whether you're singing them to yourself or not. And you're saying this is an indication 
of substituting righteousness for wrongful thoughts or wrongful actions. The scripture doesn't teach that, Doug. It doesn't. It never says to do that. Some people might suggest. But the key spoken of in the New Testament to really being a man or woman of God is being filled with the Spirit. And if you are, you are commanded to be filled with the Spirit, does anybody know what verse that is that commands you to be filled with the Spirit? Ephesians 5.18. It's a command. But after Ephesians 5.18, it gives three indications that you are filled with the Spirit. Three indications. 5.19 is the very first indication that you're filled with the Spirit. And what does it say? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart for the Lord. This kind of substitutional righteousness changes everything when it comes to sin in our lives. Daniel said this to, to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He gave him the secrets of how he lived righteously, saying, use these in your life. Well, we're going to find out next week what Nebuchadnezzar does. What Nebuchadnezzar does. We need to find out about the power substitutional righteousness can have in your life. Uh, I'm going to close the word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could come together to see this key principle of substitutional righteousness. I pray that you'll help us to learn these techniques so that we can use them to defeat the sin in our life. Help us to load up before where we know the promises to meditate on and to thank you for. The attributes that we can look to. We know the portions of your word that we can use as a, as a sword to fight against the evil one and the sin he wants to perpetrate on us. So, Father, help us to follow Daniel and learn his ways. Help us not to compromise, but to see ourselves as warriors for you, willing to stand up no matter what the consequences are, refusing to compromise, letting the world see your light being reflected through us. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.